Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Ephesians chapter 4. I do appreciate everyone that was here on Sunday and had a great day. I had a great turnout and really encouraged by that and had a meeting with our officers and staff right after the, uh, the day and talked about some future plans. And I'll probably share some of those on Sunday night uh, during our class together, our class time together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. Everyone have a uh, study guide tonight? Anyone need one? We still have one couple. All right, Justin's going to grab a couple, so that's okay. All right, he'll get those taken care of. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're continuing this thought on unity. Uh, we started it last week, and, and as, we, as we hit on it, really last week was really just kind of an introductory type lesson and really more of an engaging lesson. As the, the series title suggests, Engaged, uh, remember chapter 4 through 6 really shifts the focus. It's not necessarily doctrinal or theological. Um, it's more of the practical side of, of um, what Paul is trying to teach and encourage believers in. So uh, excited about the next several weeks as we um, walk in this unity and understand what unity is all about. I think we need one more up here, Justin. I think Tiffany needs one. So, all right. Ephesians chapter 4. Go ahead and follow along with me. We're just going to read the first three verses tonight. That's where we'll be. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all loneliness, not loneliness, sorry, lowliness, and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day, and Lord, I pray that you'd be with us the next few minutes as we open up your word and dig in a little bit deeper tonight as we try to uh, find out these attributes towards unity and discovering what unity looks like in the local church. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that is truly unified in the gospel, unified in Christ. And Lord, help us to get rid of our preferences and help us to make sure that we are focusing solely on you and on your word. God, we love you. And God, I thank you so much for what you've done in this ministry and what you're going to do. And you're really just excited about the next several months and, and the next several years of some things that we have planned and in store. And believe you're going to do some great things here. And God, I pray that you'd help us again as we look at this passage tonight, that you'd help us to glean what we need to glean. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, let me, uh, let me do a quick review of what we had set up last week with the first three chapters. Remember that Paul, again, is more doctrinally in the first three chapters and more uh, the application in the last three chapters. But all the first three chapters talks about how the gospel creates some things. And we looked at those things very briefly. Remember, it's a new me. This is all about our identity, our identity in Christ. There is a new me. Once you're saved, you're not no, you're no, you're not, not no longer you're no longer the person you were before. It also creates a new humanity. Uh, we are all one in Christ. Uh, the third thing, it creates a new community. And what we're talking about here is the local church. And then a new mission. There is a mission for the church. There is a mission for individual believers. Uh, and as we get to chapter 4, again, it shifts the focus. And the key word in this last half of the book is the word walk. Uh, several times in this these last three chapters, uh, Paul is talking about walking. And it's not necessarily a physical walk. He's trying to help us and encourage us to walk worthy of what God wants us to walk. And what he's talking about is being consistent in our Christian life. And I, I think a lot of us would, would dare say that consistency is a killer sometimes in our lives. And what I mean by that is uh, we are very consistent in certain aspects of our life, and then all of a sudden, we're very inconsistent in certain aspects of our life. And I've seen many times in my own Christian life how I've been consistent in my Christian life, and I've been inconsistent. So what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to get us to be consistent in our walk, um, in everything that we do and say, and how we're applying the scriptures and the truths that we've learned and the thing that, that, that we learn about walking is it's a learned thing. As we said, you know, a baby doesn't come out of the womb and just start walking. They have to learn how to walk. So again, we have to be consistent. And there are four practical ways that Paul refers to walking over the next several chapters. The first one is walking in unity. The second one is walking in purity. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 17. And then walking in harmony. 
chapter 5, verses 18 through 6, verse 9, and then walking in victory, the last half of chapter number 6. And tonight, again, we look at unity. Unity comes from within. It's a spiritual grace. Unity and uniformity are not the same. Unity comes from within, and uniformity comes from without. And these next few verses, verse 1, 2, and 3 specifically, Paul is showing the Ephesians how to walk worthy in unity. And this is very key, and I really want you to pay close attention tonight to this lesson. There's a lot of truths that we have in here. Uh, I know I don't necessarily have a lot of notes for you to write down specifically tonight, but really pay close attention to this lesson, this message, because I believe it's going to be a great help of understanding how we can stay unified as a church, how we can stay unified in the gospel, how we can stay unified in Christ. And what Paul is giving us, especially in verses 2 and 3, are attributes of unity. Remember, disunity is the source of more gospel roadblocking than any other thing in the history of Christianity. And as I mentioned last week, disunity is really carnal Christianity that is spiritually immature. It's carnal Christianity that is spiritually immature. When we are disunified, what we're doing is we're showing our lack of maturity in our Christian faith. And again, I'll explain a little bit more about that as the message goes on tonight. But look at verse number one. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. You know, when when Paul is addressing uh, the different churches and as he writes the different epistles, he changes the, the connotation of which he writes it at times. Sometimes he addresses himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes uh, he addresses himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make reference to that here in just a minute. But I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech. That word beseech means to beg, to plead. Uh, Just like we would beg or plead with our kids to clean up their room or do what they're told. Or sometimes you have to beg with your husband, right, Amanda, to do what he's told. Yes, thank you. I'm putting myself under the bus tonight. Anyway, he's beseeching, he's pleading, he's begging What? That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Remember, the first three chapters, all doctrinal. And it's very important to understand this because it does make a difference what you believe because what you believe determines how you behave. And the first thing we see tonight is this. Unity flows from a heavenly vocation. Unity flows from a heavenly vocation. Make sure you don't spell vacation. Spell vocation. There's a difference there. I think he got it right, so I was just saying that. But Paul is motivating in verse number one, where he says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He is motivating with their words. He is motivating them with a plea, with a gracious posture. Again, where is he at when he's writing this letter? In prison. Very important to understand that. Very important. Paul is suffering on their behalf. He is suffering for churches like Ephesus and Galatia and and Rome and other churches that he helped start. And he's helping them understand that, hey, what I'm doing, I'm pleading on your behalf because I love you. Now think about this. If if someone were, were to say that, man, I am suffering on your behalf, that carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? That would carry a lot of weight with me. If someone were to say, Chris, I am suffering on your behalf, and I know that they're suffering on my behalf, I'm really going to listen to them. And that's what Paul is trying to encourage us here. He's not trying to, to you know, get them to feel guilty or sorry, but he's pleading with them graciously. Hey, please, listen to what I'm saying. I'm, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He's pleading with them. He's not trying to make them feel sorry for him, but he wants them to listen to him. What I'm doing, I'm doing it for you, so hear me out. Let me ask this question. When do you motivate with grace versus force? Here's what I mean. There's a lot of times in our life where, you know, instead of being gracious towards people, we kind of throw the hammer down. And what I mean is, you know, you ever get mad, you ever get frustrated, and and instead of showing grace and love and compassion, you just give it to them. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? Happens to me a lot. And I've even thought about that as I was looking at this lesson. I'm going to explain what I mean here in just a minute. But There's a lot of times, especially in my family, I I deal with a lot here at the church and the ministry, and sadly, I think my family gets more of that hammer than the gracious side. You know, even this morning, uh, Noah, I watched him for a little bit, and I didn't feel good, I still don't feel too well, the headaches are coming back a little bit, but um, 
You know, he was, he was just doing something that a two-year-old would do. Wasn't doing anything crazy, but it just it annoyed me because I wasn't feeling well and other things that happened, and, and I, I immediately just went off on him. I know it should shock all of you guys. You thought I was perfect, but I'm not. But I, I immediately went off on him, but then immediately I felt bad because he didn't deserve that. And then he started crying and kind of whimpering, oh, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'm sorry. And, I, and it broke my heart, and I felt bad. And I said, come here, Noah. And I gave him a hug, and I realized that I was wrong in that situation. But I realized that a lot of times when I'm pleading, maybe with, with my family, that instead of pleading with grace or compassion or love, it's more of a force. Hey, you have to do this. And you think about that. What? What is more motivating, really, if someone, if someone is trying to motivate? You know, some people, they need that forceful hand. And what I mean by that is they'll listen to that. If someone kind of yells at you, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to get where I need to go. I've got it. But I think it's more effective when instead of just yelling and forcing and making sure we're doing things out of guilt and fear, we're trying to be gracious and loving. Let me, let, me, let me illustrate it on, on this, because there is a point with this. Let me illustrate with this on a, on a pastoral side. You know, imagine our, our finances aren't, aren't the best. And, you know, they're not, they're not the greatest, but they're not the worst either. But imagine I were every Sunday just to kind of, Hey, you guys need to start tithing. What is your problem? We have a lot of things that need to be done in this building. You need to start giving your money. I'm going to start going to your homes and get your money if you don't give. I know, some of you guys are like, uh, if he does that, I'm gone. But then others might be like, oh, I need to start giving. But what would be more effective if I were to do that every Sunday? Or We really need more money. We have a lot of things in this church that are breaking down or things that need to be fixed, things that, that, that need to be finished. And I, right now, I even think about this. I know it's a little illustration today, but I think about all the rooms that still need to be finished. And I know we've gotten four or $5,000 thus far in our vision, but... We still need another four or $5,000, but what would be more effective, me just laying the hammer down or me trying to be gracious and loving? I think me being gracious and loving. Hopefully that would motivate us, right, to give because it's not that he's trying to make me feel guilty. He's trying to encourage me. And really, I say that because that's what Paul is doing here. You know, there were times where he said, I, Paul, an apostle, he's kind of giving his, his authority here, but this time... I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm suffering on your behalf. So in a sense, he's not laying the hammer down. He's kind of using the feather. He's kind of trying to motivate them. He's pleading on behalf of grace. He's saying, I want what's best for you, so please listen to me so you can apply this to your life. And again, this was written specifically to the church at Ephesus, but the same principles that Paul gave them are principles that we can apply in our Christian life. So I want you to understand that he's trying to motivate them, and he's trying to motivate us, us, 2,000 years later, through grace. And again, I, I feel guilty about that. There's, you know, we're doing this series on grace on Sunday mornings, and we'll get back to that this Sunday. But a lot of times, I am very ungracious to people, very unloving. Well, they don't deserve it. You're right, but I don't deserve it either. And the Lord has really hit me with that, that, I need to be more gracious. You need to be more gracious. We need to be more loving. I don't want to just always be laying the hammer down so that people are are fearful and living under fear and guilt in a ministry like this. I want people to do it based on their motivation for love and compassion for Christ. So I want you to understand that as he's pleading, I can just picture Paul even probably crying with tears as he's writing this letter in prison. Please listen. This, this is important. You need to get this. You need to understand this. This is going to help you. I've just spent, which he didn't have chapters, but I just spent half the letter talking about doctrinal, theological stuff, helping you understand who you are. And now I want you to get what you're supposed to do now that you understand who you are. As he continues in verse number one, he says, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. This word worthy carries the idea of being weighty or heavy or deserving. Now let me ask this question, and I'm not asking it in a spiritual realm at this time. What is your vocation at this present time? 
And what I mean, what is your job? What is your job? And again, I'm not asking the spiritual side of this question. I'm asking a literal, physical question. So my vocation, my job is I am a pastor. So hopefully that answers it for you. It's a simple question. So answer to me tonight. Uh, what is your vocation? Somebody tell me, what is your vocation? Anybody? Anybody have a vocation? Yes, Susan. Office administrator. Okay, very good. What else? What is your vacation? Vacation, yeah, vocation, whatever. Shipping, okay. What else? Retired, yes. I'm close to that, 60 years away. <laughs> what else? What are your vocation? It's not a hard question, people. It's really not. What is your vocation? What is your job? I wash dishes. Very good. Dishwasher, laundry folder, uh... Never mind, I'm just going to stand toilet cleaner. <laughs> the list goes on. Villages? Maintenance, okay. Lori? Domestic engineer. Domestic engineer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Fancy title. $30 an hour? Yeah, I don't know. What else? What are your, what's your vocation? What's your vocation? What's your job? Yes. Um, assembly specialist. Now we're going to start getting some fancy titles, I can, I can just imagine. I know, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want to see your reference in your card. <laughs> just kidding. What? Overseer. Overseer, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good, that's good. What else? What's your vocation? Yes. Or Quality inspector. Quality inspector, okay. What else? What else? Anybody else have a vocation? Or you used to have a vocation? Or you want to have a vocation? <laughs> Michael, I know you're dying to share something. An everything person. An everything person. Okay. I didn't recognize you back there. I, st I still thought we had a visitor doing the, the media and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> Brother Ron, what's your vocation? Used to be building contractor. Landlord. Still a farmer. Very good. Yeah, that's good. I wasn't asking the spiritual side. That's good. I'm, I'm glad you're still that. I'm glad you're still that. <laughs> glad that didn't change. What else? Yeah, Maddie. I know you're dying to say something. What? You're a quick trip? You are a quick trip? Oh, okay. <laughs> you are quick trip. Wow, that's awesome. She is quick trip. Anyone else? What's your vocation? Yes, Wayne? Janitologist. I was waiting on that. I love that. I love that. Janitologist. <laughs> Anyone else? I think we've got most people tonight. Justin, what's your vocation? That's a good question. Restoration specialist? That's good. What? Fancy. I know there's a lot of fancy titles tonight. I'm going to go to your boss this week and actually see if that's what they are, but no, I'm just kidding. Now, let me ask this question. Now, there was a reason for that, and it, it wasn't to put down. It was, I was, really was curious with that. Now, we all have a vocation, typically, whether it's a mom or some kind of creative engineer specialist or whatever, whatever the title is. But is your secular vocation why you've been placed here on this earth? No. Is your secular vocation why you've been placed here on this earth? No, not entirely. Now let me finish this thought. We think, well, I'm a engineer, a specialist, whatever, assistant to the captain of the first rank. I don't know, whatever it is. What I mean is so many, so many people, I think, take so much stock in their secular vocation. But Paul is saying here that there is a vocation wherewith you are called. There is a vocation that you are worthy of. And here's what he's trying to get us to understand, as he says, look at this verse again. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. God has us here for a reason that is greater than ourselves. Look, we can spend every day, every weekend doing the things that we love, and I'm not, I'm not against that, I'm, I'm really not. But we have to understand that there is a greater purpose in this life. There is a vocation, a calling that God has for his children. You see, the Christian life is more than just doing, it's being, it's finding our identity in Christ, in Christ alone, and letting everything else become secondary. And when we think about unity, I want to ask this question, I'll answer it myself, but 
How does this create unity? You take all the people of different colors and different backgrounds with different families and different incomes and jobs and allow the Holy Spirit to align them to one specific purpose and calling, and you have unity. You see, but it must be Holy Spirit-led. The first step out of unity is when people start to, or first step outside of unity is when people start to diminish the weight of their heavenly vocation. Here's what I'm trying to get us to understand. That we are called to do the ministry of the gospel, first and foremost. But I have a job and I am this. That's fine. But your first calling as a Christian, as a child of God, is to do the ministry of the gospel. But I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. But are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? And if you're a child of God, your first ministry, your first calling is to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, we can take the job that we're in and realize that it's much more significant than we might realize. We're not waking up every day just to get a paycheck. But I need a paycheck because I have to pay my bills and and I, I need food on the table. If that's the only reason you're waking up, then you miss what your vocation truly is, what your calling truly is. When you wake up, you should wake up realizing that my job is to honor Christ to glorify Christ, to please Christ in all that is said and done, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what job I am in, whether I'm a pastor or a creative specialist or whatever else we are, our job is to Christ, to please Him. Is our main focus, is our main drive money, or is our main drive, our main mission to reach people with the gospel. You see, wherever you are, God has put you there, and you're going to work for God, or you should be working for God, because there's a greater purpose. And think about that. Wherever you are, God has placed you there. And there's a purpose greater than just making money. The purpose is Him. So are we using our job to realize there's a greater call? a greater vocation wherewith we are called. And this is what Paul is saying here. Again, I'm not saying everyone has to be a pastor, but everyone as a Christian should be a minister of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world. But I don't hardly ever get out of the home. Well, use what you have to teach those in your home the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, life in church becomes unified when everyone gives a greater weight to their individual and corporate calling. And that's what he's saying, that you walk worthy, that you understand the the weight behind the job that you're doing. It's not just to make money and have a good time on this earth. There is an eternal purpose behind what you're doing. So are you using your job as that eternal purpose? Let's continue on. First thing is, Unity flows from our heavenly vocation. But the second thing that Paul is saying is this. Unity grows in grace. Unity grows in grace. Look at verse number two. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Over the next two verses, Paul is showing how to walk worthy of the calling, how to walk in unity. And we're going to highlight these very quickly. The first thing is this, lowliness lowliness or unity, or not unity, sorry, humility. Lowliness or humility. The Greek word Paul uses here is coined by Christians. In Greek, there is no word for humility that does not have some sort of meanness or insult attached to it. Before Christianity, humility was not considered to be a virtue at all. The ancient world looked upon humility as a thing to be despised. The Greek language did have an adjective for humble, but it was always associated with being a slave, being without honor, cringing. If someone was described as being humble, they were looked upon as a cowering, groveling, beggarly, and inferior human being. In today's culture, even today, that word humble or being humble is not necessarily a virtue that our world is striving for. Well, I'm striving to be humble. And I say that because most people are very proud. 
I'm going to hit on this here in just a few minutes with this. But humility means putting Christ first and others second, and self last. It means knowing ourselves, accepting ourselves, being ourselves to the glory of God. God does not condemn us when we accept ourselves and, and the gifts that God has given us. He just, or he, he does not just want us to, he, he doesn't want us to just think more highly of ourselves. That's what it talks about in Ro, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And so often, it's very easy for us to think highly of ourselves, is it not? Well, I am very great because of the gifts that God has given me. And we let everyone know how great we are. But Paul says the first step to being unified, the first attribute to unity, is to walk in lowliness, to walk in humility. Now let that sink in for a minute. And I want you to write this down. Humility doesn't need to speak. Humility acts. Think about that. Let me say it again. It's up there on the screen. Humility doesn't need to speak. Humility acts. Here's what I mean. If we're always trying to tell people how humble we are, are we really that humble? No. You know what we're doing? We're showing how prideful we are. Hey, I've really been working on my humility. Look, look how humble I am. Look at all the stuff that I've been doing. Is that humility? No. That's pride. And, and look, I, I'm, not, I'm not picking on anyone tonight because I've been there and I've been guilty of this. There's been times where and I've really been, I've been humbled. And, and what I mean by that is God has had to humble me. But there's been times where I've you know, tried to tell people how humble I am, but all I'm doing is showing my arrogance and my immaturity, and that's not really humility. Humility doesn't need to speak, it just acts. You can tell if someone is truly humble by their actions, not by their words. And that's what I mean by that. And this first attribute towards unity is walking in lowliness, with all lowliness, with all humility. Look, the goal is Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we spent some time on that last year. Christ humbled himself to be a servant of all. So let me ask these questions. Is that how you view yourself? As a word, or do, you, do you view yourself as, as worthy of attention or unworthy of attention? Do you view yourself as the servant of all? As less important than someone else? Again, you don't have to answer these questions. They're more thought-provoking questions, or do you get upset when no one notices what you have done in the church and how much you know? The person who is lowly and humble does not expect recognition or repayment for what they've done because they don't need it. They know their recognition and payment is from God. So the first step of unity, the first attribute of unity is walking in lowliness. Now, Imagine, again, we've, we've kind of thrown out these scenarios, you know, past several weeks. But imagine if we had a church full of lowly-minded people. Again, that would, I think that would blow Decatur out the, out the window, whatever. Because it'd be a group of people that didn't care about themselves. And what I mean by that is not saying you're not going to take care of yourself and you're going to look horrible. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. But your main concern is someone else. Your main concern is, are they being reached with the gospel? Are they being reached with the gospel? Or is our main concern, hey, look what I did. Did you see that paint on that wall? I did that. I could show you some paint that I did and I could show you some paint that other people did. <laughs> but... It, it's a funny illustration, but what's our main concern? Do we do things for the recognition? And don't get me wrong, it, it's nice to be recognized, but is that, is that our focus? If we're doing it for recognition, why are we doing it in the first place? Now, here in a few weeks, and I'll talk about this at the end of the service, I want to have some, some of those service-type services where actually we, we try to do some things within the church, but it's just things that need to be done. But again, Humility doesn't speak, it acts. And in order to walk in unity, we have to learn to walk in lowliness. We have to learn to walk in humility. The second thing, the second attribute is this, meekness. This comes from the Greek word parates. 
It's where we get our words meek or gentle. Sometimes when we think of people like this, we think of them as being a weak individual. The best definition of weakness that I've ever heard is meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. To be meeked means to be broken. You know, I've never meeked a horse, but I've talked to individuals that had to meek a horse. They had to break the horse, and I don't mean they literally broke the horse so they couldn't be functioning. What do I mean is they had to break them of their will. Did that horse lose its strength? No. They still had just as much strength. They learned to get their strength under control. So to be meek means to be broken. They're still just as strong, but now that animal yields to the rider. Now it yields to the yoke. And here's an important truth. If you've never been broken, it's going to be very hard to be meek. So an attribute of unity is meekness. Wow, I've been broken a lot. Well, I'm not talking about for our own foolishness. But if you've never been broken and allowed God to break you, then it's going to be very hard for you to learn to be meek. And when we take all this and put it together, we should not be picturing a docile creature. You know, many of us tend to think of someone being gentle means that they're compliant, mild-mannered, complacent but nothing could be further from the truth. Gentleness or meekness is power restrained. It's controlled ferociousness. This means that someone who is gentle can still use force and even get angry when the circumstances call for it. Because you think about this. Did Jesus ever get angry? Yes, he did. But the thing is, one, he didn't stay angry, and the reason he got angry was there was a righteous anger. And there was a reason for his anger. Even in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, we'll get through in the next several weeks, where it says, be angry and sin not. So being meek doesn't mean that you never get angry. You know, there are times when you might have to get angry. But if you're meek, if you're that proates, you will know when to be angry, how to be angry, and what to do when you're angry. But a lot of times when I'm angry, I don't know what to do when I'm angry, and there ends up a hole in the wall, or a handprint in the wall, or something else. So if you want to walk in unity, then you must first learn when not to fly off the handle for stupid reasons. We've all been there. We've all done that. We'll continue on. Not only does he say walk in humility or lowliness, walk in meekness, the third attribute is really walking in long-suffering. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, this word can be translated as patience, or as some people say, to suffer long. This word used is, was used when explosives were invented of having a long fuse. Again, it does not mean a lack of power. Does dynamite lack power? No. Even if it has a long fuse, does it lack power? No, it's still just as powerful with a long fuse or a short fuse. It has the ability to destroy and annihilate. But a stick of dynamite with a long fuse takes quite a while to explode, doesn't it? And power, like dynamite, is exactly what you have in Christ that we saw in Ephesians 1-3. through So we need to make sure that we have a long fuse on our power. And here, I'll explain what I mean. We've all known people who blow up in anger at the least in little things. You know, someone has a short fuse. But here, Paul calls us to have a long fuse, to be long-suffering, the ability to bear insult and injury without bitterness and complaint. That's difficult. Long-suffering is the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. It's knowing when to fight. It's knowing when to use force versus grace. Well, God's patience towards us should be our goal. Well, I understand that he is God, but if God can be patient towards us, shouldn't we be patient towards other people? So shouldn't I learn to be more patient towards Noah and Nate? Yes. That's a mark of unity. Think about this. How can a church be unified if we're short-suffering <laughs> instead of long-suffering? You know, and, and I've seen this in churches, and I'm sure you have too. Someone messes up, and I'm not saying, you know, there's certain things that I think that call for different things, but it's so easy to just Got to drop the hammer. They messed up. They're gone. They're done. 
But where's the grace? Now, we have to find the balance because I think some people just throw too much compassion and, and not enough force, and there has to be a balance of that. Again, there are times where I've had to get on my kids because they weren't listening to a maybe more of a mild-mannered dad. I had to raise my voice, but I couldn't stay there. I couldn't start beating them. That, that's foolish. But Paul says to be long-suffering, to have patience. Let's continue on. He says, forbearing one another in love. Paul is really referencing some of the fruit of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit in verse number 3 is the result of a believer walking in the Spirit back in Galatians chapter 5 or 16. Forbearance is this, get this down, restraint. It's restraint. It's about putting up with one, with one another's shortcomings. Anybody have a shortcoming in here? I think we should have a service where we just list off each other's shortcomings. Wouldn't that be a great service? Probably not. <laughs> Some of you just got that. Next week, be here. We're going to have all your friends list off all your shortcomings, okay? And then you can list off their shortcomings. We're not going to do that. But forbearance is restraint. It's putting up with another's shortcomings. It's very easy for us to point out someone else's problems, but then forget our own, is it not? And the key here in this, this verse, in this phrase where he says, forbearing one another, is the word love. The key is love. Get this, get this. This is talking about an unconditional, no-strings-attached type of love. Does the love that God has for his children have strings? No. So if the love that God has for us has no strings, what is our love for other people? It shouldn't have strings either, does it? Right? But how often does it? How often do we have conditions to our love? I will love you if you meet my checklist. I will love you unconditionally if you do exactly what I say when I say it. Is that really love? I mean, we look like, oh, man, that's, that's crazy. But we act like that. We really do, and... And a key to unity is forbearance. You know, it's like when, when, as parents, you put up with your children's shortcomings because you love them. You know they're not where they need to be because they're maturing. You know they're learning, so you bear with them in love. Here's the key. Here's the truth. No one in here has arrived spiritually. If you think you have, then be ready to fall. But it's about seeking the best for others. How do you love unconditionally even when you're treated wrongly? That's a good question. That's a deep study right there. How do you love unconditionally when you've been treated wrongly? I'm going to give you the most simple, easy answer I can give you. And I'm nowhere close to this. It's about submission. It's about learning to give up control. It's about losing control to God and realizing that He's in charge. What I mean is, I can love someone unconditionally even when they've hurt me if I learn to give it over to God, who has the power that I don't have, who knows how to love like that. I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. Can he? Yeah. But they've hurt me. Does that mean I should just go hang out with them? That's not what I'm saying. But if we're trying to be like Christ and we're trying to have unity in Christ, then we have to learn to forbear, have that restraint in love, unconditionally. Submission, giving up control. Here's what it's about it's about yielding to the Spirit. Realizing that it's not about us, it's all about him. Let me continue on. We're almost done. And we'll all tie together here in just a minute. Forbearing one another in love, and then lastly, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. The word endeavoring means eagerly or earnestly. It means being diligent, doing one's very best. Excuse me. It literally reads, 
being eager to maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit. It is a word that a trainer of gladiators in Rome might have used when they sent one of their men to fight to the death in the Colosseum. They would say things like, you need to make every effort possible to stay alive today. (laughs) That gladiator going in there knew they were possibly going to die, but they were going to make every effort as, as much as lieth in them to make sure they stayed alive. Now, our endeavoring is not to keep ourselves alive. Our endeavoring is to keep the unity of the Spirit alive. And there's something interesting that stands out here. I want you to get this. Paul isn't telling us to make unity. Because unity cannot be made by individuals. Unity is only found where? Two words. In Christ. So Paul is just telling us to keep what we already have in Christ. In Christ, we are unified, right? In Christ, there is no division. Why is there division? Because we try to get outside of Christ. Not saying we lose our salvation, but we try to do it on our own instead of allowing Christ to do it through us. So our endeavoring is not keeping ourselves alive. We can't endeavor to keep ourselves alive. Our endeavoring is to keep the unity of the Spirit. Unity does not come from us. It is given to us by God when we become Christians, and it's simply our task to maintain it in the Spirit. And then the final thing here, we're almost done. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. Peace with others, first and foremost, begins with peace with God. If you are not at peace with God, there is no way you can be at peace with others. And you wonder how we cannot be at peace with others It's because we're not at peace with God. Because we're mad at Him for something. It's only when the peace of God rules in your hearts that we can build unity with one another. And the purpose for all of this that Paul is setting up here before we even get into these ones here in the next few verses, he's giving us these attributes, these six attributes, Six attributes of unity. Lowliness and meekness and uh, forbearance and endeavoring to keep the spirit of unity and long-suffering. All those things, having that bond of peace. This is what brings about unity. And the purpose for walking worthy is onefold. And that onefold purpose is this, unity. Within the church, there is a prevailing spirit of peace wrought by God's spirit. But there's a great tragedy within the church. And here's the great tragedy. Not every believer walks in the Spirit all the time. Think about it. Do you always walk in the Spirit? I, I know I don't. There's a lot of times, sadly, I don't. And again, we wonder why there's not unity. Too often, what we've done is we've allowed self and the old life to reenter into the picture. Here's what I mean. We allow things like prejudices and differences and hurts and jealousies and complaints and grumblings and gripes and pride and arrogance and comparison, dislikes, all of those things to take place. And the result of attitudes like this is catastrophic. Get this down. The result is divisiveness, disturbance, and disunity. The result is divisiveness, disturbance of peace, and disunity. What causes division of the Spirit? Instead of lowliness, you know what there is? There's pride. Instead of meekness, you know what there is? There's arrogance. Instead of long-suffering, you know what there is? Impatience. Instead of forbearance, there's a critical spirit. Let me ask this question. I think I asked it last week. And I want you to answer it tonight as we kind of close here in the next two, three minutes. What happens when there is disunity in the church? What? People get disgruntled. That's good. What else? What happens when there is disunity in the church? Lose focus on Christ. Very good. What else? Anything else? Oh, that's good. We assume things. You ever done that? 
You assume something is going on when maybe it's not going on. That's very good. What else? What, what are some things that happen when there is disunity in the church? And many of us probably could answer because we've probably been in a church like that before. Oh, that's good. The testimony of the church is hurt. And who is the church? The building? The individuals. So then our testimony is hurt, right? That's very good. What else? One or two more. Anything else? What, what, are, what are some things that happen when there's disunity in the church? Splits. Splits? Oh, yeah. I think many of us have been a part of that. Brother Alan? Yes. There it is. Satan gets the victory. He's not going to win the war, but he gets those little victories, and then what happens is churches start to die, and they start to crumble, and they start to fall apart. The gospel's not going forward. All because instead of being lowly, we're prideful. Instead of being meek, we're arrogant. Instead of being long-suffering, we're impatient. Instead of forbearance, we have a critical spirit. And many of us probably in here could probably say that I, we, have been one of those at some point. Maybe we've been all of those. So we've got to think about this. When this happens to us, when we start complaining and get critical, I'm not forbearing. When I'm impatient, I'm not long-suffering. When I'm getting all arrogant, I'm not being meek. When I'm prideful, I'm not really humble. Let me ask this question. What would a church look like, and this is a hard question to ask, but what would a church look like that is truly walking together in unity? Anyone? What would a church look like that is truly walking together in unity? That's good. She said you wouldn't be looking at each other. Because it wouldn't be about each other, right? It wouldn't be about, well, I can't believe Brother Ron's doing that. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. That's why there's divisiveness in here. Disunity. <laughs> That's good. My God. That's good. Truly joyful people. I think I made that comment in our uh, uh, Philippians series. I think the best type of outreach is rejoicing Christians. And if a Christian is rejoicing, there's got to be unity in the Spirit. Let me ask this question. We'll close. What can you and individuals in the church do to bring about unity in the church? What can you personally and individuals as a whole do to bring about unity in the church pray that's very good pray for ourselves pray for each other yes that's very good what else be an example yes the right example right okay i thought that's where you're saying that's good what else that's good praying and being an example the right kind of example not puffed up hey look at me but showing people this is how you live again Acting it, not necessarily speaking it. That's really what he's talking about. Justin? Yeah, that's good. Being supportive, being a servant. Seeing a blue watermelon and not a red watermelon, right? <laughs> Some of you guys will get that later that we're on Facebook. <laughs> Some of you that aren't have no idea what I'm talking about. That's, those are good. What else? What can you or individuals in the church do to bring about unity in the church? Praying and and being an example and supporting each other. What? Oh, that's good. That's very good. Not being afraid to call out this unity. And I think that happens a lot on the opposite side that people don't call it out because they're afraid to call it out. What are they going to think of me? Well, a friend loveth at all times and a brother is born in adversity, right? We need to be that friend, that brother, that sister is willing to call out a problem in someone else. How else are they going to grow? And if we see a spirit of, of arrogance or pride or you know, critical spirit, if we call it out early on, there's a good chance it might change. But if we wait too late, it's probably not going to change, right? Call it out in love. Yes, that's good. That's key. Because that's what it goes down to, forbearance in love. What else? Let's do one or two more. What, what can you as an individual do to bring about unity in the church? Michael? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, praying for each other is important, but even praying with each other, right? Bearing one another's burdens, right? What else? 
being friendly with everyone. Yes, that's very important. That's very important. Accepting people that are different. Yes. And I, again, I, I think a lot of us are very, can be very judgmental, right? What I mean is you see someone that looks a little bit different than you, it's very easy to be judging and critical of them. But how are they going to receive the gospel? How is the gospel going to transform them like it transformed you if we're not, not necessarily we, I accept your sin, but accepting of them. I love you. It goes back to love. That's good. What else? One or two more. Anything? Anything? No? You're all out. Amanda, I know you're dying to say something else. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Someone falls, someone messes up. I know you're going to mess up. Stinks for you. Exactly. They might not. And if we do nothing except for talk about it with all of our friends, is that really helping? But I talked with everyone else about it. But have we talked to them in love? It goes to that forbearance. So again, this is, this is just opening up what Paul is discussing here. And we've got 13 more verses on this. It's going to take us another six months just to finish these 13 verses probably. Probably not. But anyway, walking in unity. These are attributes for unity. So I really want to encourage you as we leave tonight to make this a prayer. Lord, help me to be lowly-minded, to have humility. Lord, help me to have forbearance, forbearing in love. Lord, help me to be meek. Lord, help me to, to endeavor to keep the spirit of unity in place, to be doing everything I can to make sure we're staying unified, to make sure I'm staying unified, to make sure other people are staying unified. I think it goes exactly what Amanda's been saying. Let this be our prayer. And if this is our prayer and this is what truly happens in our lives, then our church will be transformed by the unity that Christ can bring. And again, amazing things can take place, but unity does not happen overnight. But just because we become unified doesn't mean we can lose it, or we can't lose it, because we can. That's why we have to endeavor, strive to keep it. And realize that we can't make it. It's only because of Christ. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we love you tonight. And God, I thank you so much for, for this lesson and, and really how it's encouraged me as I was studying this afternoon in my office. And Lord, God, I pray that you'd help myself first and foremost to have these attributes have peace with others and first and foremost peace with you to endeavor to to strive to to keep alive the spirit of unity and even as was discussed in some of the comments help us to to call others out in love and and challenge them and encourage them if we see something going on in their lives that's that's wrong or it's a struggle that that could create disunity it's very easy to talk behind people's backs. It's harder to talk in front of them and, and to them, and that's what we need to do more of, Lord. Myself included, help us. Help us to be lowly-minded. First thing that Paul talked about, to be humble. And if we're always saying how humble we are, then we're definitely not that humble. And Lord, I pray that you'd work on my humility and get rid of the arrogance and the pride and, and make sure that 